a great movement is coming across Canada, both in terms of First Nations and the opportunity for economic prosperity and empowerment. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Economic prosperity is critical to all Canadians. And so here today to talk about this critical topic for First Nations and about the conditions for it is Joseph Cornell, who's a senior research analyst with the Frontier Centre for Public Policy. Welcome, Joseph. Hi, thanks, David, for having me on. Well, Joseph, it's uh, delightful to, uh, to see you. Uh, you have a tremendous background in terms of not only your academic backgrounds and studies at uh, places such as McGill, but also your experience working on resource projects. So I wanted to begin um, our conversation about a critical topic, namely prosperity and First Nations, about a basic question, why does prosperity matter to First Nations and Canadians? I think, you know, First Nations have been uh, disempowered for quite a while. And I think that, uh, you know, if, if we look at, we're being honest, we look at First Nations, uh, you know, since the beginning, uh, you see that since the Confederation, First Nations have been uh, kind of let out, uh, uh, shackled and removed from the economy. And I think that uh, if we look at the indicators, the socioeconomic indicators, uh, you know, the community well-being index and things like that, that uh, First Nations are are at the bottom. And I think that that is a deplorable situation. I think that I think that First Nations want prosperity like any community. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, when it comes to building wealth, you know, I start with the premise that, you know, First Nations are as entrepreneurial and innovative as anyone else. And I think that, we, you know, they, they face some real systemic barriers like the Indian Act and things like that, land restrictions, uh, lack of access to capital, that things like that. that so I think that, you know, um, it's it's just simply unconscionable, I think, in 2023 that First Nations are lagging the way they are. And I think it doesn't have to be that way. That's the exactly. main focus. I, I totally agree, Joseph. It's 2023, so let's get on with the prosperity agenda for everybody, including First Nations uh, communities. And what I find so fascinating is that the long history, and as you know, we're, we're both uh, students of history, Joseph, but um, the incredible history going back millennia with First Nations is profound when it comes to trading, entrepreneurship, being innovative. Um, that's really part of the DNA, if you will, of First Nations peoples, is, is it not? Well, it is. I think, you know, First Nations before contact uh, were, were very innovative. They used the environment that they had. Uh, when they came into contact, you look at something like the Hudson's Bay Company, uh, First Nations are very adaptable, they're versatile and they've adapted to the environment that they're stuck in. And I think that uh, that's definitely, uh, you know, the case now. Exactly. I am amazed, um, certainly as uh, both of us have very much worked with different First Nations, the amount of exciting business that's going on across the country, whether it's in real estate, transportation, energy, finance, I mean, every walk of the economy you have emerging First Nations. So how important are First Nations to the Canadian economy today? Is there a way to kind of summarize that up? 
First Nations are a large part of the economy. We see over the last couple of decades, First Nations have been definitely more involved uh, in, uh, in market-based ventures. They've been partnering with organizations. And if you just think about it, you know, like um, uh, First Nations that live close to, uh, on the reserve, they live close to mainstream communities, you know, they, they spend, uh, you know, they spend like anyone else, they're in communities. Like I know you're in Lethbridge, you know, we have First Nations like Standoff that are close to, to where you are, uh, Blood Reserve, that, uh, you know, those are people that are spending in Lethbridge and all over Southern Alberta. So, you, you know, uh, so First Nations, um, they're already a large segment of the of the of the economy. I think that, you know, there's a definite, you know, genuine desire for them to become much more involved once some of these uh, these barriers, right, are, are removed. And they're starting to slowly, uh, you know, you like it's an, it's it's unthinkable that decades ago, if you could imagine, like you have First Nations that major First Nation groups that are vying to be a partner, an equity partner in Trans Mountain, things like this. If you can think about it. Decades ago, we wouldn't we wouldn't even be talking about that. But now you have First Nations that that are looking, they're trying to access capital, want to be involved. They they don't want to be just passive beneficiaries. They want to be active, uh, you know, participants. They want to you know they they want a stake in the, in the as these profitable ventures. Exactly. So I, it sounds like that's a kind of a seminal change in everybody's thinking. Is they don't want to just be passive partners, but full active participants and really driving the prosperity agenda forward. Would that be a fair comment? Oh, definitely. Uh, I think, you know, if we look at the, the constitutional uh, kind of the, the legal doctrine, First Nations need to be accommodated and, and consulted on projects. And often that involves, uh, you know, private parties have to uh, provide some kind of benefits. So in the past, they called them impact benefit agreements. So they were, you know, they were, um, they're basically, you know, dollars for the community. They were agreements to hire so many members from the community, education, training, things like that. But now First Nations have evolved from that where they're saying that, you know, they've kind of discovered that if they tie themselves as, you know, as equity partners to some of all these projects, then they, 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 um, they have a stake in them. And then as the project gets profitable, they get profitable. It's kind of like one of these, uh, you know, all, you know, all, all, all boats lifting, you know, kind of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, dynamic going on that First Nations want to be a part of that. They, they're, they're seeing, you know, a lot of them, you know, the impact benefit agreements are great. But if you look at it, a lot of them are looking at they're saying, well, can we get more from this? Can we get can we derive more benefits from these deals that are happening on or at or near or, or on our territories? Exactly. It sounds like a classic win win for everybody, both First Nations, but all of Canada. Um, there's no doubt about it. So when you think of some of the great success stories of prosperity and First Nations, are there ones that readily come to mind? I know that in my book, there's many of them. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think of um, Chief um, uh, Joe Louie in, in Asoyas in, in British Columbia. It's an astounding First Nation there where you have, um, I, I, I don't know the precise number of members, but I believe it's several hundred who employ well over a thousand people from the larger area in their winery, their golf course, their resort, a number of other real estate businesses. It's really quite an astounding example. Are there other ones that you think of, Joseph, that are, are great examples of prosperity in Canada when it comes to First Nations? 
like I can think of, like if you think of like the Heisla First Nation in British Columbia, they're one example where they've really tapped into the uh, the, the oil, well, the natural gas. Like you know, they're they're building a uh, LNG facility. They're expanding that. That's one community that has really uh, kind of taken the bull by the horns and has been very proactive. And you know, and not to think that you know they don't. Uh, they don't have their own demands. You know, they've made sure that the companies respect the local environment and that they're respecting the community. So they're trying to do these things. Um, so, you know, there's definitely the, you know, a lot of the First Nations are concerned about making sure there's a balance between environment, stewardship and economy. Uh, but in terms of other prosperity, uh, First Nations that are more prosperous, I'm thinking of member two First Nation out here in Cape Breton Island. So, it's an example where it's a First Nation that is, uh, it's very close to uh, to Sydney. And it's almost, if you've ever been there, it's almost indistinguishable from the city of Sydney. Mm-hmm. But it's a community that has uh, really, um, they, they kind of improved themselves from the ground up. So they actually started as a, a very, you know, kind of like a Soyuz. You know, a Soyuz was a bankrupt First Nation. And then by transform transformational leadership in my view of uh, uh of clarence louis and others uh so now uh they own a lot of properties uh commercial developments there's a hotel and this is kind of like a soyuz number two also has this kind of success story where they're a net employer in the region so they have a lot of non-indigenous people coming to work you know on this reserve and to me that's that's a good sign that you know uh, First Nations, you know, are giving back and coming, looking at this kind of prosperity, you know, they want to share with the with the whole region. So these are great stories, and there's a whole bunch others that we need to to uh, get to know about and and really celebrate. So you have been a very incisive um, commentator on so many issues at uh, Frontier over the years. Uh, you've done a lot of incisive uh, white papers on uh, prosperity as well about uh, First Nations and the kind of conditions and also challenges that we face. So I did want to talk about that a little bit with you, Joseph. So if you look at um, First Nation prosperity, one of the keys that I've certainly learned from you has been the insight that partnerships between First Nations on many resource projects, including oil and gas, are really critical. So if you look at that future now, are there roadblocks that you see with, um, I, I, I hate to nickname them, but there's bills like Bill C-69 and C-48 that are kind of like the, the so-called um, never pipeline bills. And also now we have recently the uh, release of the so-called just transition, which is really all about kind of a green alternative energy thing. How, are those potentially big barriers then for, for prosperity in First Nations, Joseph? Um, definitely. Uh, I was actually in Ottawa when the C-69 and C-48 were being studied. And, you know, I, I would, you know, as much as I agree with a lot of the complaints that they have with them, but I think, you know, no more pipelines is a little bit overblown, but I think, uh, but definitely, like, I'll give an example, like, uh, so what the, what C-69 did was create a lot of more criteria for approving projects, but a lot of extra conditions and extra, extra criteria um, many of them were quite nebulous. Like, you know, just as an example, like you had to add on, you know, you had to see how there was a gender impact of your study. Sorry, you'd be building a pipeline and you'd have to figure that out. Okay. 
Yeah. So it's like, and it's nothing against, you know, there, there are many great women that work on, on the oil sands and whatnot, but it's like, it just, it adds on and you don't know how, what that exactly means. Right. Like, like what, you know, what level of, of, of participation from women, do, you know, is, is enough. And there are other, other nebulous criteria that are added on that just make it more difficult. Uh, the other thing is, you know, uh, having for having, you know, those who are involved in a project estimate the downstream impact of of their of their um, of their project. That's almost impossible to read. You know, to actually look at to add that in. So you know what I mean. So when you refer to examining the downstream impact of a project, what what do you mean by that? What would be an example? Well, it's like like eventually carbon emissions go into vehicles and they get you know they get expelled and it's like a lot of most of the carbon emissions in the in this cycle of you know of that end up in transportation so actually adding transportation uh to it is just is another thing that you know c69 talked about uh i think that in the case of c48 uh, some people felt it was just a weird discriminatory uh targeting of a particular region and uh, so it was north northern British Columbia. So they're actually the Nishka Nation in Northwest BC was actually contemplating an LNG project, which they they're moving forward on, but that they were very concerned about the impacts of this, right? Okay. That this, that you know, they're like, why are you targeting? And a lot of people were looking at it and saying, well, um, you know, did you know that you know in BC it has a huge uh, a commercial cruise line industry, which also pollutes a lot, but no one seems to be. They just seem really fixated on one area. So. So things like that, um, but in terms of projects, like why you know there's the, some of the barriers. I think, uh, like, like we look at see the, the Wet'suwet'en Nation, the whole the example in 2019 and 2020, which we were all affected by, most of us with the, with all the the ro the railway blockades that were done in solidarity. Uh, one of the issues was uh, the the proponent, uh, you know, uh, so co coastal gas link. So th mm -hmm. they were saying that. You know, they had consulted with all the indigenous parties on the ground. And so you have some hereditary chiefs that come afterwards. And, you know, and I would argue and I, I would argue in a self-interested way, they were against the pipeline from the beginning, a certain segment. And then saying, well, you didn't talk to us, but the the Wet'suwet'en nation, the elected chief, they have a system where um, that internally they do consult with hereditary chiefs. So it's like it's kind of like internally. Uh, they did consult with those with them, and then when they finally go, when it finally goes to a vote at band council, it's considered that uh, you know the whole nation has spoken, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like someone coming after changing the rules. So, like the private company, they're there. They want to make their deal. They want to, you know, they want to sign off on this. And to me, you know, it's to anyone, it's not their responsibility to decide who exactly speaks for the First Nation. So, so it's things like that that um you know like just on a in terms of perhaps the federal government and the definitely the, the first nation inside like internally they have to decide who's who's who speaks for the community how what kind of internal processes so that proponents you know they know who to speak to and then when they sign off there's none of these issues there's not litigation immediately after so it it just makes the deal that you know easier to do when they can do so this is very important legislation because we don't want, I mean, if people want to do business and work together to create prosperity, you don't want to suffocate people with endless <laughs> red tape. And yet you do want yeah. good consultation, as you say, 
And sometimes that's not always straightforward, but you do have to move forward with that consultation on the lesson and make it simple enough that people can even dare to invest in these projects. Otherwise they'll never happen, right, Joseph? Yeah, th that's what it is. Like, and we know that these are long-term ventures, these resource projects, and they depend on predictability because especially there's a lot of capital over time. They want to know, you know, that, that it's going to last over the long term. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you look at duty to consult policies, which define who do you speak to, what's the protocol. There exist at the federal level and also the provincial territorial level, but they're all different. They're all at different stages. And one one good way that I've kind of promoted is finding a way to harmonize these policies, or at least mm -hmm. you know, that, so that you're creating a stable environment for investors and like so that they know. They, they they come to the table they know who they need to speak to and then once that's done it's final uh, so then okay. they can invest and then continue on so so by harmonize do you mean like make rules simple and the same across jurisdictions so like somebody wants to invest a billion dollars in something a business with a first nation the rules are clear they're simple they can do it uh but if they get more complicated they're going to shy away is that right Right, yeah. Like I think at, at least if they could, you know, look at all of them and provincially and territorially and federally and, and try to find a way, yeah, to make them a, a little bit in some ways more uniform. Like they don't obviously have to be the same and they won't. Mm -hmm. Different provinces and territories have their own things. Yeah. But they, it would be good to, uh, to have that so that, you know, investors know what they're getting into. So I did want to pick up the thread a little bit earlier, Joseph, about... Uh, you know, the green revolution that's happening with the federal government, uh, we're all experiencing the price of paying more gas at the pump. So when you look at all this legislation coming in, um, it's been named the quote, just transition uh, to alternative <coughs> energy. And there's a huge debate about that, obviously, and that, you know, will really undermine people's, you know, the affordability of our lifestyle, but also our economy. Um, I'm, I'm really interested also in the impact that this kind of federal initiative has on the prosperity and health of First Nations. And I reference uh, Dale Swampy, who we, we, we know um, is a member of the uh, Samson Cree Nation. He's the president of the National Coalition of Chiefs. And, and he had a brilliant article, as I recall, in uh, the National Post in January of this year, who basically said, look, these, these policies that are being introduced are really a blueprint for more pain and poverty with First Nations. And I thought it was a really powerful article. Do you think, do you think he's being fair in his analysis, uh, Joseph? I, I, definitely. Like, I think even more so than the mainstream. I think, you know, uh, for First Nations, uh, oftentimes, these research projects are really the only game in town. So, like, they're the major projects. And I think that, uh, so employment in these, you know, the employment and the benefits is even more, even more critical. And I think, you know, I could mention, too, that especially when it comes to the energy sector, uh, that is the, that those are the highest paying jobs for, for First Nations in Canada. Like, they are, in terms of private sector, they are the highest. So with all this with the lack of investment and lack of development you, you you'll see first nations they definitely lose out right and like we were saying at the beginning you know these are these are the communities that need it the most 
Yeah, so, exactly. And I think the other point with uh, with with Swampy uh, that he definitely brought out really well was uh, with with the just transition and a lot of these initiatives that the environmental legislation, uh, First Nations don't feel that they're being properly consulted about them. Mm-hmm. They're not being told this is the impact that it's going to have on our community. So, and I'll mention, you know, uh, in this day and age where Indigenous reconciliation, it's so important that uh, this government at least should be, you know, have First Nations front and center, should be talking to them. But instead, oftentimes, uh, you don't see that happening. And oftentimes, um, it is the case that a lot of the attention is only focused on First Nations that are opposed to energy development or resource mm-hmm. development, mm-hmm. you know. Actually, just as another little quick aside, is that one thing that I did in my research, I discovered in my research is that uh, the federal government was de- was definitely very keen on funding so-called clean energy, you know, renewable uh, energy projects for First Nations. But when it came to oil and gas or anything like that, fossil fuels, uh, it's it's hands off. But th- that's really for a lot of First Nations, like, you know, um, there are a lot of oil producing First Nations, especially in the West, that are dependent on that, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, these renewable energy projects, there are some definitely. There's you know wind and solar that are happening on some First Nations, but they're still really few and far between. Yeah. And for them to kind of pick and choose who they want to support, to me, is definitely uh, a problem. And I, uh, you know, First Nations are starting to say that. Exactly. Well, and I well, I find it confusing this area of policy because you need to consult as with all Canadians, including First Nations, but the impacts that you're alluding to on First Nations are profound. I've been to so many remote First Nations where energy is expensive, like the the cost of transportation. Um, You have, uh, like uh, much of Canada is is relatively cold. You need that Mm -hmm. energy. So if you potentially double the cost of uh, a liter of, of diesel, which is really kind of the backbone for a lot of energy, I think, in, in First Nations, um, that's going to have huge impacts on on people like women, children, everybody. Uh, I, you know, you wonder how people will survive. I mean, it's a huge impact on your on your monthly budget, isn't it? Oh, it is. Like, and I think Swampy also, uh, Dale Swampy also pointed that out that in terms of just energy costs for First Nations, they're going to be the most impacted. Actually, and you were mentioning about like reserves, a lot of reserves are very dependent on diesel. And it's definitely, you know, diesel is a riskier fuel. I'm not going to say it's not, and it's a problem. But I remember this, that I was doing some research also into this, that the federal government was kind of uh, balking at some First Nations that wanted to shift to natural gas. This federal government is late to the game in recognizing that natural gas is a so-called transition fuel. It's a green fuel. It's less than coal. It emits less. It's 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 not certainly less dirty, <laughs> dirty than coal. So, but this is another thing where you know First Nations, you know, they want to take advantage of natural gas and those kinds of things, a plentiful fuel. But you see the federal government and its in environmental initiatives, it runs directly counter to that. And to me, it's like um, if you want to, you know, the, this is the blueprint for really, um, you know, preventing First Nations from getting ahead. And it's very. Exactly. S- very sad, you know. It's a, it's a huge barrier. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I think that's very well said. Um, when we talk also about um, really exciting pathways to improve prosperity, we both are very familiar with um, 
some of the research on the importance of good governance um, and the importance of running communities well in terms of oversight and and um, like self-governance. And I think we're both familiar with the um, the Harvard University Center for uh, Native American Center for for Governance, and they, they've they've yeah. really done fantastic research as well as as you, as you have, showing the mm -hmm. positive relationship between good governance and economic prosperity. So can you tell us more about that and that yeah. relationship? I think, yeah, that was definitely like an insight that the Harvard project made on, you know, a connection between a, that, you know, First Nations that basically were separating um, elected politics from service delivery and administration and also business ventures. And so they started in the United States, but they did also, you know, they expanded a lot of their insights into Canada and, and, and they're definitely well known. So I think the, this, this became abundant to me when I, uh, so years ago, when I started with the Frontier Center, we had led a uh, initiative called the, uh, the Aboriginal Governance Index, which as far as we know, was the first of its kind in Canada that, that, that measured perceptions of quality of governance and service services on First Nations in the Prairie Provinces. So we started in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and then Alberta. And one of the things that I definitely noticed was, you know, we were generally taught, you know, speaking with First Nations. So we spoke to average First Nations on the ground, and we discovered that um, um, they were under the Indian Act, right? So they were under, and, you know, a lot of people saying, a lot. I heard often people saying, well, the Indian Act is this, it's an insurmountable barrier to progress. Uh, from First Nations, which is definitely, it's true in, in, in large part. But what I noticed was uh, we, we came in contact with communities that, that were kind of doing uh, governance the best that they could with what they have. So mm -hmm. so even a First Nation, uh, you know, example, uh, Fisher River Cree Nation, in, yes. uh, which is north of Winnipeg. And Chief David uh, They Craig. were doing amazing things. Uh, you know, uh, they were highly ranked uh, in our survey every year. And uh, what, what they did was, you know, the, they were definitely, they were keen on making sure that all their service delivery, the housing and things like that were were separated from politics. Like I'll just give an example, like on housing, uh, there's an issue with uh, politics and nepotism uh, in terms of housing allocation on First Nations. And this is definitely an issue that uh, is, is not too controversial. And uh, so what Fisher River did, I remember this, is that, um, rather than use names for people they allocated numbers so they identified people that were anonymous yes so it just as a system that they were tired of this person like okay you voted for this person so why do you have a house right. whereas like you know single mothers and young families were not being given houses and i think also what they also did is you know it's definitely important that uh, one thing that first nations are, are very active on is our economic development corporations so you know, collective entities on First Nations. Uh, so they're trying to buy and sell things. Mm -hmm. And uh, they try to um, definitely make sure that their board of directors is insulated from any type of meddling or interference from yeah. chief and council. Those people that, that work uh, on those economic development corporations and on those First Nations recognize that when, a, when the First Nation, it's focusing on the bottom line and it's keeping the politics out, then that First Nation is doing is doing well, right? We're yeah. talking about prosperity, right? Like, no, and that, focusing... I, uh, I think that's a very good example that you gave, Joseph, of uh, Fisher Branch. Um, 
First Nation in um, in Manitoba, just north of, of Winnipeg, uh, with uh, yeah. Chief David Crate and, and Council. They should be commended because, um, so the whole idea then, what you're emphasizing is that good governance matters because you want an environment that is predictable, the rules are clear, because if you're gonna have any investor, you have, you, you, you've got to have that predictable environment, that, that, that safe space. Um, I know that has a different meaning for other people, but the point is you've got to be uh, clear on how your investment's going to be treated so that everybody can do what? Oh, do business and prosper. So that's, yes. um, I think that's a great angle. And, and I think it's uh, been great, uh, Joseph, the way you've written about that First Nation, uh, Fisher Branch, and celebrated that, that kind of breakthrough and that kind of leadership. It makes a huge difference because um, people can live better uh, lives and, and go forward and prosper. Is that, that's the bottom line, is it not, Joseph? Yeah. Just as an example, like, you know, beyond the Fisher River, like the, uh, use the example of Member 2, because if people, you know, people at home watching, they, if you look up Member 2 First Nation, you'll see that this is a very progressive, forward-looking First Nation that's done well for itself. They're also, you know, they also adopted a policy where they 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 use outside accreditation, you know, so ISO, you know, nine thousand and one, oh, yes, those right. kind of accreditations. Very to, good. Yeah, to assure that, you know, so for outside investors, there they can know that their financial systems, their record systems are top notch, and and that helps them. And and you know, I remember speaking to someone there. I went to the community, I spoke to them, and they said they said, well, you know what, companies, the big big companies like Boeing and Amazon, all these other companies, they won't even give you the time of day and they want to know that your your systems and, you know, ISO certification or mm -hmm. whatever, any type of outside, exactly. it's something that really helps. And the good thing about that is it's not coming in from the government. I think that First Nations do have a point about kind of onerous requirements that they have to face, that it's mm -hmm. like they're buried in paperwork. And so no one wants to be that. And that, you know, that's also a killer for productivity and all that. What you just yep. shared there is really good reality therapy, I would call it, in the sense that if you talk about good governance and trans, you, you're really talking about transparency, right? Uh, both not just financial transparency, but how you're meeting a standard that can be verified. It's not just someone saying, right. well, we're, we're well run. No, you can prove it. And, and that's not an easy thing to do, is it, Joseph? So transparency, you would say, is another key factor for success here, is it not? Yeah, it's like, yeah, we can't, you know, just take me at my word, right? That's no one, you can't do that. Like when you say, uh, you know, we're transparent, take us at our word. Like they want to know, they want to see some kind of outside thing. So I think, you know, we would be remiss not to mention, you know, the First Nation Financial Transparency yeah. Act, which um, I would say that for my, my, uh, my many years out on the road on Prairie First Nations with the governance index, mm -hmm. that was the, that, that the passage of that law under the previous government represented like the highlight of that because that's what I universally heard from people and it was heartbreaking uh, to be honest with you a lot of the stories and at the time I felt that all I could do was give them so, you know the exposure to what they were talking about because I told them I'm not with the government I can't you know so when the government passed that law I think it was a definite good first step um, in terms of transparency for First Nations and it wasn't just about uh, you know, shaming chiefs and councils. Although mm -hmm. we know that there, what had happened was you had a lot of First Nations where we where we found out were earning very exorbitant salaries for for the population, 
And, you know, the first people that proposed that were the people that were in those communities. It wasn't like, you know, non, non-First Nation people were complaining. It was people on the ground said, said, look, you're making this much. You need to change that right away. And they did often. Yeah, exactly. And so the Transparency Act is very popular on the ground. And I can vouch for that. I talk to people and I know that. Like, Wow. So you, you saw this working with many, many First Nations across Canada that uh, financial transparency is popular with citizens of First Nations, period, right? Oh, yeah. I would argue they were the ones who demanded this, like, cause, because they were asking these questions and they weren't getting answers. And like INAC has procedures, Indian Affairs at the time was called, had procedures, but they were very lengthy, onerous. And oftentimes, okay, this is, uh, this uh, to me is an insult. I remember someone telling me this, they complained about something and abuse and the, the INAC person, the Indian Affairs per- person told them to go and talk to your chief, right? Like, so they said, well, my problem is with my chief. Exactly. You know, yeah. or something. So it's like things like that. And in all fairness to First Nations, chiefs have a difficult job. And anybody who's ele- an elected mm-hmm. official, I, I was one in the past, you want transparency because you want to build trust. You want to you make sure that people are confident that the money is being used to serve the people. And yeah, so it makes a lot of sense to me. But we're... So what's the status of that? We're not we're not enforcing that act anymore. Is that right? Well, th- the understanding was that when when uh, the, the new government came in power in 2015, uh, they they announced that they will no longer be enforcing it. So they said basically they're not going to jump to the penalties. So there are penalties. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is that the minister can require the the band council to comply. Like they can just order it. Another is they can go to court. And as a last resort, the the, the federal government can with, can uh, withhold transfer payments to a First Nation that is not complying. So uh, the, 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 the Liberal government said that uh, they felt that this was too heavy handed and they said that they would like to replace it, but they never did that. Mm. Uh, so, okay, and so, so it's what been it in limbo it, now. Yeah, it created this situation where you have some First Nations, some well, communities like chief and council saying, well, we don't really have to do this, even though members were very happy to see it. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like one of the things that I always liked about the, the Transparency Act, it wasn't just all these salaries, but it was the fact that it showed us how many First Nations uh, were had own source revenues. Uh, so like there are a lot of First Nations that had, they were making their own fine. So it, to me, it was, a, it was a good story. Like it was yeah. a positive and in some cases, it, there are First Nations that their own source revenues exceed their government transfers. So, and so, so they, the situation was changing. And I think, and knowing who, which First Nations have kind of own source revenues, I think is helpful that if we want to finally change the fiscal relationship with First Nations and promote self-sufficiency exactly. and all these things, we need to know. We need to have a complete picture. And I'm sure people, First Nations on the ground, that's what they wanted. Yeah. Too. Well, with good information and public policy, it's critical. It's foundational to making wise decisions. So yeah, exactly. speaking of another interesting policy area, uh, you've done some, some very good uh, analysis about the importance of um, property rights for First Nations communities. In fact, uh, one of your, your um, analyses was featured in the National Post and the Financial Post uh, just a, a few weeks ago. Why, why are property rights important and what would you do to change it to help move this prosper, prosperity agenda forward? 
I think anyone that is an objective observer knows that, uh, you know, a private contract and the right to, you know, private property to derive benefits, to exclude others, that's fundamental. You look at all the indicators, look at the Freedom of the World Index, it's uh, critical in that is a commitment to private property. And I always look at it saying, like, well, why do we exclude? Why do we think that it's not going to work with First Nations, right? And this comes from the colonial period that the, the, the colonial government wanted to make sure that the uh, preserve First Nation land protected from unscrupulous land, you know, speculators. So they made it so that uh, First Nations, it would be very, very difficult to get their land. So one of the reasons, one of the ways you could do that is if if you don't pay your taxes or something, then you the um, uh, foreclosure, someone could come and take your land. So the so the government was well intentioned, right? Like everything starts with good intentions that they wanted to protect. But now you see First Nations uh, nowadays, they're just they're realizing that basic credit loans. Uh, for, so we know that uh, you know for most entrepreneurs in Canada, the the most the high the um, the most common source of collateral is your home and your property or something like that. Mm -hmm. And for First Nations, uh, they don't own that. Like they don't have title to that. So um, they can't play, they can't use those. They can't go to a bank. And um, and I think what's happened is you've had situations where you had the bank council or the federal government has backstop mortgages for First Nations to kind of, it, to me, it's always dealing with the symptom, not the cause. Mm. and. But what it does is it creates a bank council with a complete, a huge liability for all these wow. backed mortgages and, and things like that. So, but there are ways, you know, there, the, the federal government, they, they, like, they've been trying to find new different policies to get around this. But to me, it is the, the, one of the biggest elephants in the room because it's like, um, um, if there's one way that you don't, you know, let's, to me, it, this is the one of the worst aspects of colonialism was that First Nations were were in were um, were treated this way. That taught that they can't control their own property. Um, the federal government has to control it, and you can't be trusted to make your own decisions. Yeah. No, you're absolutely so, right, Joseph. It's what a what a patronizing system. We should just get rid of the, frankly, the Indian Act. I know you've you've talked about this. Um, but you, you, want to, you want to empower First Nations to prosper and do their thing, own property, and go forward. So this is a very exciting discussion that we've had today uh, with uh, you, Joseph Cornell. And I so much appreciate your insights and your courage and your leadership on this very important issue. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.